And the asymmetric dominance effect refers to the fact that customers tend to be more inclined to purchase something when they're provided two options. Now that's not one bad option and one good option, but it's one good option followed by one great option. What that does is it establishes the baseline that something is good and then providing them something that is even better, it makes it seem like an opportunity that's really, really hard to say no to. This episode is brought to you by WHU, the Otto Beisheim School of Management. WHU is reshaping the way students learn about business, management, finance, and entrepreneurship through its innovative programs and partnerships in Germany and across the globe. To learn more about this globally ranked university, visit whu.edu today. Well, hello, folks. Garrett here. Welcome back to the latest episode of the Most Awesome Founder Podcast specifically the third version of our Inspiration Session series. That means, once again, I'm joined by my esteemed colleague and friend, Professor Dries Fahms, Chair of Entrepreneurship, Innovation, and Technological Transformation at VHU. If you've listened in before, then you know that these Inspiration Sessions are quick looks into a few topics of current relevance. Three from Dries and three from myself describing something that made us learn, something that made us think, and something that made us laugh. This week, we're gonna to be touching on a wide range of subjects, like do generalists or specialists make better entrepreneurs? Can psychology and neuroscience make us better at sales? Are social welfare programs catalysts for entrepreneurship? What the hell is Elon Musk up to now? And a few funny stories that are both coincidentally about unique beverages. Coming to you from WHU, on the banks of the Rhine River, in beautiful Fallendar, Germany, this is the best and most awesome founder podcast. A show about entrepreneurs, innovators, advisors, and educators, and the stories that make them who they are today. So without further ado, let's get things started. Dries. Welcome, my friend. Hi, Garrett. Man, great to have you and your inquisitive mind back for another one of these fun inspiration sessions. It's always a pleasure. It is indeed. So let's just go ahead and kick things off. You know the drill. I don't need to walk you through it. Um, why don't you share something that may recently made you learn? Yes. And actually also, it's, it's getting a bit of a tradition. I also brought again an academic paper with me that was recently published. So I will delve again into the nerdy academic uh, part here. And this time I brought a paper of uh, four authors. Uh, so it's uh, Vangelis Sutaris, Bo Peng, Stefania Zerbinati, and Dean Shepard. And they recently published a paper in the journal Organization Science with the title Specialists, Generalists, or Both. Founders Multidimensional Breath of Experience and Entrepreneurial Ventures Fundraising at IPO. So I think as the title already suggests, this is a paper about the distinction between specialists and journalists. And maybe before we go into the nitty gritty stuff, uh, Garrett, how would you see yourself? Would you see yourself as a specialist or as a generalist? <laughs> Man, you always start with the hardest questions. 
And I, I always have a tendency to respond with probably n- more nuance than is uh, required for those questions. Formed in a very academic way. In that. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, of course, I'm going to caveat as usual, as I always do, and caveat and say it depends how you define that. Um, I would say I'm a specialist in startup entrepreneurship, but within that realm, um, as a more of a non-technical founder, I have a tendency to wear many different hats, which I think would place me firmly in the generalist camp. Yeah, that's uh, indeed already very important. And also the authors make that distinction. So they make a distinction between industry specialists versus generalists and functional specialists. So they look both at, have you been in a lot of different industries active or did you have a lot of different functions? So they also acknowledge that you can look at different dimensions to make that distinction. But still, let's let's take it uh, a, a bit uh, at a broad perspective, because I, I know that you have invested in startups, that you're in the process of, again, uh, investing in startups. So would you prefer the lead founder to be a generalist or a specialist? Mm. Do you have a preference? So I would say I always look at, in very general terms, I look at founders having two roles. I think I've said it before on this podcast, you either build shit or you sell shit, right? So there's usually kind of a business-oriented person, and then at least in the tech world that I play in, there's obviously usually a technologically-oriented person. Um, I think usually without question, the engineering talent has a very special skill set. They know a very unique language. And the business side tends to uh, cross over more boundaries. However, I would say within both of those roles, domain expertise is really important. So if you're building uh, a company in e-commerce, ideally you have uh, a business person that has experience with e-commerce. If you're building a company in Web3, you want an engineer that understands blockchain and, and Web3. So there is, I would say, a degree of specialization is, uh, is not only important, but the data seems to show that industry and vertical expertise tends to lead to better outcomes. Yeah, okay. And so why I was intrigued by this paper is when I teach entrepreneurship to students at WAU, I tend to say, look, as an entrepreneur, you, especially at the beginning, you're a bit jack of all trades. You know, you, you will not have the money to hire a marketing manager, so you might have to do some marketing. Uh, so you actually, and therefore, actually, I always a bit implicitly assumed successful founders are more generalist than specialist. Um, but if you look at the paper, they actually start from the totally different direction, a bit more in your direction. They are saying, no, there is a, what they call a generalist penalty. So generalists are less likely to attract investment than specialists. And in the paper, they mainly focus on the time at IPO, which is, of course, uh, that's something you need to take into account. But they are saying, look, if a startup goes into an IPO, of course, potential investors will look at the profile of the founders and especially the lead founder. And if the lead founder turns out to be a generalist, that will trigger a penalty. Then uh, actually investors are less willing to invest than um, when you would have a specialist. Hmm. Would you agree with that or based on your own experience or? 
Well, the timing piece is interesting because when you get to IPO, you're usually a much larger organization with more defined roles and skill sets. So I would hypothesize instinctively that at that point it matters less you know, than in maybe a scale-up stage or something like that where you don't have the resources and capacities. Now, in the early stage, it's, it's really kind of interesting, right? Because you need to wear many different hats. However, you know, I, I think a lot about Sarah Sarasvati's effectuation principles and like the, the bird in the hand principle, which is successful entrepreneurs build businesses based on their assets, who they know, what they know, what they've experienced. And if your most important KPI is speed, the more you know an industry, the more you have the contacts and you can navigate that based on experience in that space, the, the faster you're able to, to operate. So I guess intuitively I would think that generalists kind of fade in and out of relevance depending on the stage of the, of the, the business. So hearing that this is referring to businesses reaching IPO, that seems counterintuitive to me. Yeah, then you would expect the generalists I guess I would say it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. <laughs> that's even more. Yeah. Yeah. It's a zero hypothesis. That's well. I mean, usually, I, you're at a you're at that stage. You have a business unit for marketing, a business unit for sales and pre-sales, and all these other other aspects. And at that point, you need someone at the top. Now, the question is: is is business strategy a specialization, or is that is that a generalist characteristic that many people have? Yeah. And so the authors, what they look at, as mentioned, they look at this industry experience and functional experience, and they measure it quite straightforwardly. So have you always been active in the same industry? Yes or no. Have you always done the same function? Yes or no. That's how they uh, create these variables. And in the end, uh, let, let me <laughs> go immediately a bit to the findings. They find this generalist penalty. So they find that if you're both a generalist in terms of industry and function, uh, meaning both in terms of industry, you have more than you have been active in more than one industry. Both in terms of function, you have been active in more than one function. Then there is this penalty, so you're you're less able to collect money at the time of IPO. So your IPO proceeds are lower. Mm. When you're only generalist on one dimension mm. and specialist on the other dimension, then this penalty is already gone. Mm. And the best thing according to their numbers, is being a full specialist. So both in terms of industry and experience, the, the full specialists are clearly the group of founders that raises most money in their sample. And again, the nice thing is that uh, in this paper, they rely on data from the London Stock Exchange. But in addition to that, they also did a number of experiments with finance students and with investors to replicate the findings. And in each of these different data collection samples, this result was very robust, which again was for me quite surprising because I could completely follow your reasoning that you would think at IPO level, the experience of the, the, the CEO should be less important than at the beginning. But so still at, at the time of IPO, it seems to have a significant effect, which for me was also quite surprising. Hmm. I mean, I can see having the best of both worlds, right, where you have industry expertise and a very, you know, unique skill set being a, leading to a higher probability of success. You know, when you look at the data on what the profile of an IPO founder looks like, 
you know, it's someone in their mid 40s, 10 to 15 years of industry experience, multiple ventures under their belt. So in that sense, I guess I guess it aligns pretty well. Where what is maybe surprising is investors' willingness to invest based on those criteria. Because I think if you've actually been in one of those roles, you realize that even though you may have a specialization, you're probably not operating on, on a day-to-day -day basis very much as a specialist, especially in the CEO leadership role where much of it is cheerleader, aspirational storyteller, you know, and I mean, that's a skill set within itself. I just would guess that's not the way they would define a no. specialist skill. No, and I, I, I was thinking very similar things because I think the, the skills that you are now referring to are for me quite generalist skills. Mm. Uh, which I think are actually very important as the CEO of, of a company that goes for an IPO. But uh, these kind of things, they could not capture with the data that they have. Yeah, so right. I think that's an important limitation, which is always the case in academic research. Right. <laughs> that's how it goes, right. of course. Yeah, I mean, it sounds to me really the message here is a specialist in particular hard skills versus soft skills. And I think even most of my engineer friends would say that those soft skills are equally as, as valuable in having it in a team at vir and especially in leadership at vir virtually all stages of the business. But huh, that is a, an interesting angle and an interesting take as usual. The academic papers always, I come in with skepticism and end up surprised, so. <laughs> <laughs> there is a pattern there. There's you're, you're slowly converting me, Dries. You're, you're reminding me I need to finish my dissertation. <laughs> cool. Well, as usual, I'm going to, to shift the narrative to more uh, popular media and uh, refer to a really interesting book that I read. The book's about five years old now, but it's by an author named David Hoffeld. And the book is called The Science of Selling. Proven Strategies to Make Your Pitch, Influence Decisions, and Close the Deal. So Hoffeld kind of starts the book with, with some key data points. And forgive me, I want to cover a few things, so this might be a little bit longer than it usually is. But as you know, I kind of geek out on this stuff. So he starts off by saying that you know about a third of salespeople are, are shown to be consistently ineffective. And about 90% of sales trainings are, are ineffective as well, you know? So um, his, whole, his whole theorem behind that is that traditional sales processes and traditional sales trainings are based on anecdotes rather than evidence. They're not very scientific. Um, this whole book is about how psychology and behavioral science can provide evidence-based approaches to making sales work more effectively. If a seller can tailor their presentation and their sales pitch to the way human brains are wired, they can have greater outcomes. Specifically, if you just know what a buyer is thinking, you're going to be able to reach them where they are more effectively. Um, and he talks about a number of different tenants and a number of, of different kind of principles that in psychology they call the peripheral roots of influence. So 
these are taking language from from the behavioral psychology space and applying it to to sales and as you know from some of my previous talks on this subject is let's look at other disciplines of science and how they relate to the concept of entrepreneurship because so much of what we end up doing is is not so far off from the scientific method so a couple that I want to share, and I'll just throw out some buzzword bingo on this one for a bit, but one topic he brings up is called the asymmetric dominance effect. And the asymmetric dominance effect refers to the fact that customers tend to be more inclined to purchase something when they're provided two options. Now, that's not one bad option and one good option, but it's one good option followed by one great option. What that does is it establishes the baseline that something is good and then providing them something that is even better, it makes it seem like an opportunity that's really, really hard to say no to. Another one that he kind of broke down that I really like is, you know, and this topic has come from many great thought leaders. Of course, you know, Simon Sinek is probably the most famous is, is understanding the why and getting to the why. Um, he's kind of outlined the six whys of sales. And he uses an example of, you know, you walk into a grocery store and you see dozens of types of cereal sitting on the shelf. You know, what makes you choose that one particular cereal? You know, was it the colorful art on the box? Was it the price? Or was there something in the flavor profile that you were just kind of craving at that time? The truth of the matter is, it's much more than one question. It's actually hypothesizes that there are actually six questions that we subconsciously ask ourselves and answer in, in that situation. The first question, why, why change? You know, maybe we have a preference. We, we tend to prefer things the way they are. So if we're gonna try something new, that change needs to be justified, you know? And we need to explain to ourselves what is undesirable about the other option that is going to make us switch to something new. Of course, we also need to know, well, why would we do that now? What is important about this specific time? Is it, you know, is something d discounted for a temporary period of time? Is there some other factor that we're gonna share it with our kids or something that warrants a different selection? When you're selling as well, you, you're not just selling a product, but he argues that you're actually selling your industry. So before you sell a specific product, you need to pitch your entire industry. So you walk down the cereal aisle, there's not just cereal, but there's oatmeals and mueslis and breakfast, you know, breakfast porridges and, and things of that, that sort. So you have to be able to present, hey, not only do you wanna pick us out of all the different alternatives, but you wanna pick this industry specifically first. And then, of course, the obvious ones, you know, why your company and why your product? You can kind of think of those together. What's your value proposition <clears throat> and your differentiator? You know, what makes your offering stand out? Is it, is it your quality? Is it your expertise? Is it proof from millions of sa other satisfied customers? And of course, last but not least, like why spend the money? You know, you know, is the purchase rationally justified? That uh, is it a cost savings or loss prevention? Is there something that rationally warrants you making that purchase? And he argues all six of those questions together 
that we, we actually go through that process subconsciously with all of the purchase decisions that we make. So if we can think about those things, um, we can be in a better position to understand our customer and, and sell more effectively. I'll do a couple other things because I don't want to just talk forever at you. But um, another topic he covers that I find really, really interesting is understanding the buyer's internal emotional state. And he uses kind of a famous example of a study they did on trial judges in the United States. And what they, what they discovered was that judges hand out harsher sentences when they're tired or they're hungry. So if you, get to, if you get to the courtroom first thing in the morning when everybody is, is fresh and just through breakfast, you tend to have better outcomes than if you do it late in the day before the court adjourns to the point that you know, well-rested and well-fed judges will, will grant people parole 65% of the time. That's two out of three. That is a huge, huge variation. So what does that mean? You can increase your sales simply by increasing your buyer's mood. And that, <laughs> by giving them that food and drinks, no? <laughs> you know, if they're feeling good, they're going to be more open and, and potentially generous in that, in that process. There was actually a famous study by a guy named Irving Janus Uh, many, many years ago where he realized he was able to increase his sales outcomes by giving all of his prospects peanuts and soda. And just by giving them peanuts and soda and the dopamine kick they got from that, they were able to, he was able to kind of drive more sales. Another piece, kind of a common one, you know, it's the idea of asking questions. It's what they call, what they call instinctive elaboration. This concept is, it's a phenomenon that when we ask someone a question, we're literally hijacking their brain and we're taking over their thinking and getting them to focus on that specific question. And there was actually a study in the Journal of Applied Psychology a number of years ago where, some, where they went around and asked people if they were going to vote. And the people that were asked Their, their propensity to vote increased by 25%. So it literally hijacked their thinking process that subconsciously uh, pushed them into action. One of my favorites is understanding empathy and primary buying motivators, understanding people's motivators through empathy. And there's this great story about two sisters that are arguing over an, the one orange that remains in the fruit bowl. So the two sisters argued over it, and they decided to split it in half, which, of course, naturally creates a win-win scenario. Everybody gets a little bit of orange. Problem was, one of the sisters wanted the orange to make juice, and the other sister wanted the orange rinds to bake a cake. So in the end, neither one of them got enough of what they needed. And if they, had they known each other's true desires, and their motivators, they would have easily been able to find a solution that worked really well for them. So using empathy, you know, the best performing salespeople can see the world through their customers' perspectives, hence allowing them to, to customize their pitch accordingly. Man, there's so many more. I've got a few notes of the things that, uh, that I really want to go through here, but I, I also- Can I ask a question? Because You, you were saying before, uh, you build shit or you sell shit, not as an entrepreneur. And now maybe I'm wrong, but I think you're one of the persons that is more about the selling shit stuff. <laughs> I'm definitely a sell shit kind of guy. 
so so if if you could give us some insight in so you have all these principles that i think are very inspiring very very interesting so how do you use them on a day-to-day basis if you have to sell your shit mm-hmm. how do you apply these principles if you're sitting together with a customer mm-hmm. so i i think most salespeople do a lot of these things intuitively, yeah. right? But they probably don't do them uh, with the level of awareness that allows them to do it effectively, right? Yeah. I, I've never met a good salesperson that doesn't have this ability toward empathy, which is putting yourself in the customer's shoes, trying to understand. I mean, we talk about it in entrepreneurship all the time. It's not just identifying a problem, but it's identifying who feels that problem, how they feel that problem, and in what ways do they feel that problem with the greatest amount of pain, right? It's the idea of creating, providing a painkiller and not a vitamin. If you don't know how people are feeling, you're not going to reach them. And the reality is, is most businesses today have multiple value propositions, right? But not all of those value propositions resonate with the prospective customer. And as a guy that had an enterprise SaaS company, that is the classic experience where you have multiple business units with multiple objectives and multiple challenges. You have to be able to pull out the value proposition that reaches that specific member the most. Same thing goes when you're raising capital. You're pitching to investors. You're trying to understand what their theses, what their objectives and interests are. In the end, much of that comes down to good research. It's the pre-sales process. It's understanding what happens where you're educating and informing yourself before you can try to convert. The problem is, and, and that's why in a lot of industries, the kind of traditional used car salesman, pushy approach mentality doesn't work very effectively because people are looking for solutions to different problems. It's not just, I wanna buy a car. There's more nuance involved in that. Yeah, so you would say there is a level of intuition that, that you need to have a salesperson, but at the same time, it's if you have a sales talk, you need to enter prepared, you need to know who is sitting in front of you and how you can frame your solution to his or her particular problem. No? Absolutely. but it, And it's also how you present yourself. And this is, uh, is one piece he also talks about in this book is the concept of social exchange theory and okay. you know, how presentation equals perception. And he, he quotes this study by Rothbart and Birrell where they showed tons of people this image of a very unassuming individual. And they told half of the participants that he was a decorated war hero, and the other half of the participants that he was a notorious war criminal. As a result, the first group thought the man looked kind and selfless, while the other group thought he looked evil and heartless. And what that basically showed is the way we perceive the world is often dictated by how it's presented to us. So really good salespeople know how to present their offerings in the, the right way, use their body language in the right way. And really, if they understand what they're presenting and what the other person is looking for, that's where they tend to, to have the best results. Mm-hmm. And, and so you think... You can learn that to some extent. To... I think you can learn the principles. Absolutely. You know, I mean, there's some of them are, 
you know, maybe require a little bit of nuance and intuitive talent. I mean, here's what I'll give you one more. One of the most simple ones is the concept of analysis paralysis, right? And um, these two scientists, uh, Iengar and Lepper, what they did is they set up tasting booths at a, at a grocery, at a supermarket, right? And they had a tasting booth full of like jams and, and marmalades. And at first they put 24 different jams out there and there only 3% of the customers actually made a purchase. But then they reduced it by 75% and only put six jams out there. And their sales increased by 900%, right? You don't need to be a charismatic salesperson to have that kind of lift, right? That is a 9x multiple just by knowing something simple like you provide too many choices, people get paralyzed by those choices. So I think some, some require some innate skills. Others can just be, you know, put the right systems in place and you'll have better outcomes. No, I think that's interesting because I have the feeling that still being a salesperson is, is often portrayed as being a craftsman and you, you need to have the talent for it or not. And actually what you show with these examples is a lot of low-hanging fruit where you can easily increase your likelihood of a successful sales by taking some things into account. So it's not just having the craftsmanship of being a salesman. It's also about just making sure that the low-hanging fruit that is out there, that you, that you really reap it. So that's Yeah, it, it's actually interesting. In the very first chapter of the book, one of the, one of the things he explained is that you, you would assume that the best salespeople are extroverts. It turns out extroverts score much, much poorer in sales outcomes, and the introverts tend to score much higher. Why? Well, they're listening more than talking. You know, they're they're empathizing with the person and trying to put themselves in their shoes. They're thinking rather than acting. You know, and there's just a a bit of deliberateness that makes it makes it more effective. Which which is the reason I kind of brought this thing up in the in the first place is like. What does, as we're starting to unlock the science of these processes, you know, what does this mean for the future of business and the future of sales? Like, are, will our best salespeople be mind hackers and psychologists? And will the out, successful outcomes of business be based on the way we kind of hack people's mindset? Or is it really just going to be on utility and the best quality or the lowest price product? But I think we're starting to understand that there's, you know, that the kind of utilitarian approach to fastest, cheapest, you know, highest quality, um, best tasting may not apply like we originally thought that it did. No, I, I, I fully agree with that. And it's a very interesting domain to see how insights from psychology can be used in other domains like sales, but also entrepreneurship in general, I would say. Yeah, indeed. Okay, I know I took a lot of time on that one, sorry. But uh, over to you, Dries, tell me something that made you think. Yes, so again, uh, I found another uh, recently published academic paper, this time in the Strategic Entrepreneurship Journal from actually a Chinese scholar uh, called Xu Wenjiang. And the title of the paper is Social Insurance and Entrepreneurship, the Effect of Unemployment Benefits on New Business Formation. Mm -hmm. So here we go a bit to, I would say, a different level. It's more about policy and how policy can affect entrepreneurship, which I think is a very interesting and a very important 
field of research. And so in this paper, um, the focus is on unemployment benefits. Mm -hmm. Maybe a question to start again, Garrett. Did you ever get unemployment benefits? Have there been <laughs> periods where you were benefiting from the, uh, the system? Jesus Christ, Dries, you've really put me on the spot for that one. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I did once for a couple months, and I had just sold my company, and I was waiting for the transaction to go through, and I was already starting a new venture, and I wanted some additional capital to do that. So, But it was hard, <laughs> I should caveat it, and say there is something, and it, it's funny because I have a family member that's getting ready to do that as well who's never done it before, and there's this maybe deeply embedded social conscience that makes you question whether you should or or could kind of kind of go through that but i'm guilty i've done it one time but no regrets we all we all pay into it anyway so no and actually i think um, that's also why i wanted to ask you because i i always have a feeling that there are different perceptions about that in the us versus europe i think in europe it's quite taken for granted then when you lose your job you get unemployment benefits and you will not easily be seen as somebody that takes advantage of the system whereas i think it's a different picture in the us in in, in general um, so that's for me always interesting to see how how are different uh, regions looking at it uh, but this is actually a study done in the us so what the, the scholar did was to take a look at different states in the us And over time, he was looking, uh, what is the generosity of the unemployment benefit system? And so you would typically see that in certain states, over time, they get more generous, then it might decrease again or increase again. And what he wanted to find out is, what is the impact of the generosity of the system on the willingness of unemployed people to become self-employed, mm -hmm. uh, to become an entrepreneur? Mm -hmm. Maybe what do you think is... Are more generous unemployment systems making it more attractive or less attractive to move from unemployment to self-employment? Oh, Dries, you you know you're you know you're going to get the same kind of bullshit answer from me like you always do. But but here's what I'll say: like I'll, I'll a lot of it depends on culture and geography, right? Like I, I spent a decade working on topics like the informal economy in Africa, right? You look in emerging markets where entrepreneurship, however you may define that, is the dominant, you know, income stream in a, in a, in a country. These are places that have some of the least amount of kind of social safety nets and social welfare programs. So to me, in that context, I would say it, it doesn't apply. Um, so intuitively, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to take a guess on this and say that social welfare does not drive Uh, entrepreneurship and it allows people to wait longer to find the more stable paying job. Yeah, and to briefly come back to your comments, because it's a very important one, because actually in academic research, but also in policy research, uh, we nowadays make a distinction between need-driven entrepreneurship and voluntary entrepreneurship, which uh -huh. means if you are living in, let's say, Bolivia, it might be that actually becoming an entrepreneur Is, is the only option you have because there is simply not the institutional arrangements to uh, be likely to work in a company. And then we are talking about need-driven entrepreneurship, whereas you would say that in Europe or the US, uh, it, it's more a voluntary principle. Huh? Gotcha. That so that, that's a very 
important one. I remember, I'm not really talking about 20 years ago when that distinction was not made. There was a very famous survey called the GEM Monitor that monitored the level of entrepreneurship in different countries. Mm-hmm. And I remember I was in an academic conference and then they showed the results and everybody was totally surprised that countries like Bolivia and Nigeria were the most entrepreneurial ones. But it was simply like, yeah, these people don't have another option. So yeah, of course you need to be entrepreneurial. Uh, but then of course you're a bit comparing apples and oranges. Yeah? So that's uh, that's an interesting part. But let's let's go to the to the this paper because I think the findings are very interesting and and intriguing. So uh, what did the the scholar found? He found that if the unemployment system becomes more generous, mm-hmm. the likelihood that you become, that you move from unemployed to entrepreneur goes down. Yeah, okay. And it also takes longer before people go to uh, an entrepreneurship position, mm-hmm. which, which actually means, I think what you could expect, like if you have, if you receive an unemployment benefit, you have a kind of cushion that makes it less uh, urgent uh, to earn money. Yeah? Mm-hmm. So then you can postpone. So that's uh, what they found, which at first sight seems to indicate, yeah, if you want to stimulate entrepreneurship, if you want to stimulate activity, we might ma- want to make unemployment systems less generous. Mm-hmm. However, they found something else. They also looked at if people move from an unemployment to an entrepreneurship position, what is the success And what they actually found was that if you're living in a state with a generous uh, welfare system, the people that make the transition are much more successful than in states where the benefit system is not generous. Mm -hmm. So what they actually found is, okay, you might have, if you have a generous benefit system, you might have less people going to an entrepreneurial role but they are much more successful in it. Mm-hmm. Whereas it seems to be that if you're in a state where you don't have a generous benefit system, a lot of people might go to an entrepreneurship position, but mm-hmm. a bit out of desperation. Yeah? Yeah. And moving out of desperation might not be the right move because then they just become unsuccessful. Now, is that a numbers game? That in these states, if less people are participating in entrepreneurship, there's less competition and the the likelihood of success is higher? That might be an alternative explanation. So their explanation is more that uh, it's a weeding weeding out effect. So if you have a generous uh, system, the people that are not really motivated to become entrepreneurs will not do it. And in that way, the the crappy entrepreneurs are just disencouraged to do it. Your explanation could be an alternative one that it's uh, you you uh, have less competition and therefore be more successful. But it hmm. could actually be an alternative. Yeah, I guess it could be yeah motivation and uh, perseverance and grit and those things as well that are entrepreneurial characteristics. But it doesn't surprise me, right? At least you know I don't know what the rankings are of the most entrepreneurial countries in the in the the global north and the developed world. But as someone that uh, comes from a country with a pretty uh, weak social welfare state, living in a country with a much stronger social welfare state, I would say the, the, the number of, the gross number of entrepreneurs in, in the U.S. Uh, proportional to population seems much higher, that it's much more of a cultural norm. Now, again, 
is that because of the social welfare state or is it because there is this kind of inherent 200 year old culture of pick yourself up by the bootstraps and own your own destiny destiny kind of piece but um, complacency sounds like um, a pretty logical explanation for what what if you can take the money and and wait it out till you find another stable job at least it gives that that need based it kind of removes that need based equation right no and i think uh, that that's also again in europe nowadays a big ideological discussion huh? so and of course we have this uh other word uh, also in europe the spending bills to to dampen the effect of corona and the question is a bit by giving people this kind of stimulus money are we actually disencouraging them to enter again the job markets are we actually creating an, an, a shortage of labor by giving people stimulus mm. uh, and so i think what this this paper shows us yeah it's it's we are not really encouraging people to go to entrepreneurship but maybe that's a good thing because we might encourage the wrong people to go into entrepreneurship you know <laughs> so i think in that way um i think the study um seems to be more in favor of having a generous mm-hmm. unemployment benefit system mm-hmm. now it also made me think because i was thinking okay i actually let's say it like that as an academic i like the results because they fit with my ideological preferences mm-hmm. yeah so i would say i'm i'm a bit more left wing lab- liberal mm-hmm. than than right wing and so the findings as support a, a, a generous benefit system which is in line with my ideological beliefs but so i was thinking with myself what would i have done if the paper would convincingly show that a generous unemployment benefit system would really dis- discourage entrepreneurship and and make it worse would i then change my ideological beliefs and to be honest i think the answer is no <laughs> yeah. so i think i i sometimes think we should be careful in using academic research as a justification for policy decisions mm-hmm. yeah because i think actually ideology is more important and think about the discussion all discussion about gender i always get a bit annoyed when i go to conferences or debates where people say oh we should have gender inequality in boards because research shows that if you increase the number of women uh, they become more profitable or whatever and then i'm again thinking like yeah but imagine that research would find the opposite which would then say that we should not hire women in boards right. <laughs> yeah and because scientific research shows that no i think having more women in boards is not a thing about productivity it's just about morality yeah it i think it's morally necessary that women are adequately represented in boards of companies for me it has nothing to do with performance effects right. and that's something what i find quite annoying that academic research is a kind of abused to justify policy decisions yeah there's some systemic issues going on there right like po- policy makers love to cherry pick the studies that that suit their narrative you know but i uh, i will place the blame on both sides because academics love finding greenfield topics right and you know 
in the end, until there's enough research on a particular topic and there's multiple meta-analyses done and you're able to look at across really, really broad populations, you know, oftentimes, you know, academic studies are, are skewed by a lack of resources or time or, or study participants or they're flawed in, in one way or the other. But because they're published in journals, they're available to the public to use use as they will, you know. So I, I'm like you. I, I might be more than you. I kind of call myself a closet socialist, and I, I think like my my ethics, the ethics and principles, without without question, come first. So regardless of the outcome of this study, I also realize we don't build economies and societies based on the need of entrepreneurs. We are still a a, a valuable, uh, albeit minority. In, in the world, and I think it's important that we stimulate entrepreneurship and, and innovation, but we're still, we don't want to neglect the other 90% of the population just to, just to serve the 10. But the one other thing that I think is worth touching about specifically in the German context is, you know, understanding kind of social safety nets outside of unemployment insurance, right? Like I think of one of the things that I was exposed to moving to Germany is this concept of the Gründerstipendium. Right, this idea where you decide you want to be, you make a conscious decision to be an entrepreneur, and you may not get money for your business, but you're going to get money to live off, at least in a menial way, while you work on that business. Right, and and to me, that I find the idea of de-risking entrepreneurship for the people that choose it. I would love to see what the outcomes are in that particular context. A is it is it uh, maybe pull, pulling people across the line to do it a little bit more? Because I think we've all seen many people in our communities that have had a desire to you know, enter the entrepreneurial world but felt they didn't have the means to, to get there. You know? So how are these very tailored specific welfare initiatives able to, to drive it? And, Maybe maybe there is a study out there, so I'll leave that leave that with you to find if it does exist. <laughs> no, I don't know. Uh, at first sight, I don't know if somebody already looked at the Grundstipendium. You would think so, but I don't know any studies because I, I also sometimes ask that question because I think hey, it's good that we stimulate entrepreneurship, but to what extent is it stimulating, and to what extent is it pampering people, and maybe just giving them more time to fail <laughs> and maybe sometimes i think about the lean startup approach it's all about failing as quickly as possible that's the best thing and actually a grunder stipendium might postpone the failure so you're actually institutionally maybe postponing failure which is not always the best thing yeah that's absolutely true but i would say venture capital can do the exact same thing you know yeah. and what's interesting about a lot of the grunder stipendiums is you're not allowed to have registered your business before you get it right so yeah. there's maybe not a an on paper failure that's happening yet you know um yeah interesting interesting topic um but i like you i'm saying you know the entrepreneurs will figure it out that's what we do you know And uh, and as you know from me speaking in one of your classes recently, I'm the first to discourage people from this this path. You have to really, really want it to be able to to manage the trade offs that come along with it. So maybe it's not a bad thing. 
All right, well, speaking of entrepreneurs, I'm going to talk about probably the most well-known one these days, who we're probably all sick of hearing about, but uh, it's, it's like a tabloid news that never seems to end, but it's, uh, it's Mr. Elon Musk. Um, just a few days ago, it, the uh, acquisition was approved, and Elon Musk is now uh, not only a shareholder, but now a, the owner of Twitter. And, you know, a lot of people might be thinking, well, you know, Jack Dorsey, this guy owns Twitter as the founder of Twitter. What's interesting is he only held a 2% stake of this company. Now Musk uh, basically put the money together and acquired the Twitter shares at over $52 per share, making it a 44 billion US dollar takeover of the company, which is one of the largest private purchases in almost a decade. I think the next largest one was a, a Dell acquisition about six years ago. And this is something we haven't seen, we haven't seen a lot of since the financial crisis of 2008, where uh, taking companies private again. But now we're we're starting to see more and more of it, which uh, might be a bellwether of things to come. But what is interesting to me is that this deal was funded on Elon Musk's personal wealth. 21 billion of it came out of his own pocket, and then he was able to leverage his assets to another 25 billion worth of uh, loan and debt financing. What that does is that puts Musk himself as an individual in firm solo control of one of the world's most influential media assets. How influential? I mean, this, this media asset led to an overthrow in Tunisia, the Arab Spring, God forbid the pre presidential election of Donald J. Trump. Like so, so much influence this you know, 144 character or 140 character uh, media outlet has on uh, geopolitics and, and the global climate. And now it is controlled by, by one individual. What does that mean? Like, what, is, what does that entail? Well, Musk has been pretty clear, right? He, he was fighting against Twitter's content moderation for a long, long time. You know, he says he wants to open source its algorithms and, and focus more attention on, on fighting spam bots individually. You know, the guy is clearly a big advocate of free speech. You know, he, he himself has posted about uh, privatizing Tesla uh, with his own money, which he didn't end up doing, but he got fined 20 million bucks for, for talking about it. So um, it's clear he's not happy the way these, uh, these platforms are being moderated and being blocked, and he intends to do something about it. So why is this important? I mean, I think a lot of pundits have talked about a lot of, a lot of components of it, but there are two pieces that are really interesting to me. And the first one is, you know, is the topic of free speech, which is what is really Elon Musk's rationale for buying Twitter, right? Like, what are the limits of free speech? You know, is, is it merely everything goes as long as it's not inciting violence or physical harm? Like, what about hate speech? You know, does that, how does that fit into the equation? Is that now acceptable under a free speech paradigm? 
And, and more importantly, like, how are we able to measure the residual impacts of that type of free speech? You know, the, the tenets and principles of free speech were built in a, in a technological climate where it was people walking out onto the streets and sending their messages or putting it in a, a local or regional newspaper. Now we're able to send out 140 characters that goes around the world in seconds. But more importantly, on top of the free speech is the voice behind that speech, you know? And what's the long-term impact of having one singular power structure, having such so much control over a platform that delivers information across the globe? You know, and Musk's not alone. Like Jeff Bezos bought uh, the Washington Post, uh, Rupert Murdoch bought the Wall Street Journal, and now with Musk owning Twitter, like, I mean, really, can, can one individual human actually have such a big impact on driving public perception and the global narrative just by owning one of these these media giants. So I would pose to you, Dries, like where do you see free speech and singular billionaire individuals controlling the mechanisms of it? I'm I'm quite concerned about the developments that we see now. So I don't like this absolute interpretation of free speech, which uh, to be honest, I think that that is much more prominent in the US than in Europe. And you also see that if you listen now to the podcast, I think you see a lot of advocates of what Elon Musk is doing in US podcasts, like the All In podcast. <laughs> they are really rooting for him uh, at the American VC and stuff like that. Whereas if you listen to German podcasts, they are very skeptical, raise a lot of issues. Uh, and, and I would say I'm also on the second strand. Eh? So claiming that there is something as free speech, for me, it's quite difficult. And, and this absolute interpretation, as long as you don't incite people to kill somebody else, everything you say is okay. I'm, I'm not sure about that. And again, especially today, like you said, with the new technologies, with the polarization, I think we have seen that a lot of damage can be done to societies even if you do not call each other to kill each other. Yeah? So that's... So this is, this is an interesting point, right? Because I, I, I'm generally in the, in the same camp as you, right? Like we need to have boundaries and parameters of, of what's okay, right? But the, in principle, it all makes sense. But in practice is where things get wonky. And I'm going to steal from the, the political right a little bit and bring up the counterpoint, which I think is a fair one. It's usually not being represented in the most effective way. But it's on the other end, it's this cancel culture thing, right? Where it's like, if, if, if you say something that the vocal masses don't agree with, then that can have hugely harmful effects on you, your career, your livelihood, even your physical health and, and well-being as a result of that, right? So the question remains is how do we draw the line and how do we draw the line in such a way that it doesn't create the haves and the have-nots, the inner circle and the outer circle? Because I think the argument is, is as soon as we draw the line, there's black and white, right and wrong, but we don't live in a reality where there's black and white and right, right and wrong. But because of the echo chambers of the technology we live in today, we tend to get thrown into these boxes. And, and there, I actually have quite a strong opinion. It's, it's about who should draw the line. Mm -hmm. Because I fully agree 
there is this kind of slippery slope that if you start banning people from Twitter, you can quickly go into this can- cancel culture thing, or if you're not woke enough, you get punished, all that kind of stuff. So who should draw the line? And my opinion is it should be the legal system that draws the line, not the owners of these platforms. So I think here regulators need to step in. And I think you now see it happening in Europe. So there was recently, I think in March, it was announced that there will be this digital market act where actually they are saying, we are now going after big tech and we will regulate them much more strictly. So if you have reached a certain size and in the in the press release they called it gatekeepers because they didn't want to use the word monopolist i think so they were talking about gatekeepers mm-hmm. but they were saying if you have more than i don't remember 10 million users mm-hmm. we will now put on your legislation and if you don't meet this legislation we will act very harshly and i think this is a bit the kind uh, i would say they are loading the guns to shoot at the big tech and I think regulators are especially also looking at Elon Musk and what he's doing. Yeah, I, I mean, again, in principle, we're on the same page. But again, to play devil's advocate, the problem is, is the regulators are, you know, ideally democratically elected or they're at least uh they're at least brought on board by democratically elected political leaders. And those political people are literally the biggest drivers of the echo chambers and the polarization, right? So what we're trying to do is use social structures to mitigate the ills of social structures, right? And that sounds like uh, uh, an, an endless feedback loop, right? Where all we're going to do is be shifting the problem 10 degrees to the left and, and to the right, but the problem is inherently going to remain. You know, my, my fundamental philosophy behind this is like, this is not a, a technological issue and it's not a governance issue, it's a human evolution issue. And I forgot who makes the quote about like, we're, we're you know, primitive brains dealing with godlike technology, right? And like, the fact of the matter is technological innovation is moving much, much faster than we socially and psychologically can manage. And, you know, maybe this is the American in me, but it's like, you know, this is it, this is a, a solution of the collective individuals, like, right? It's humans making that choice because I don't think we can regulate it. It's kind of like, you know, the, the illegal drug industry. Right. As soon as we start regulating it, it just goes underground and becomes less visible where it then becomes more powerful and dangerous. You know, so I think we're dealing with some nuance here that, I mean, is frankly frightening. And when I think of this Musk situation, I think of the benevolent dictator model. Right. Like, you know, there are these great stories of these, you know, monarchs and dictators that really did wonderful things for their people because they were the right person in place that fundamentally was compassionate and caring. And because they alone were the center of power, they were able to affect profound change. Here we are in a largely democratic society in a polarized society. So as a result, our governance is literally crumbling because the fabric of our communities and society is crumbling. So 
it begs the question, does the sole center of power making the rules or, or at least largely dictating the rules, can that be more beneficial or is that a recipe for disaster? And of course, my friend, that is a rhetorical question because I think, <laughs> I think if any of us had the answer to that, we wouldn't be sitting here on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> No, and I think I think the the whole Elon Musk case now with Twitter, it, it's a very big case all about governance. Mm -hmm. Like, can we still have a governance system for companies and stuff like that that, that is feasible? Or because to some extent, I think Elon Musk is making is just laughing with governance rules. Mm -hmm. He was disclosing way too late that he was taking a substantial share in Twitter. Then he is announcing that he wants to buy something via Twitter. It's putting a lot of pressure on the board members via Twitter, and making clear that if you do not listen to me, I will create a shitstorm and you will all suffer the consequences. I don't think these are the governance rules that we agreed upon in a capitalist society. So in that way, I think this case can have long-term consequences for how we look at governance of companies that go way beyond this single case. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think in the end, that guy, he might be out to lunch a little bit, but he's smart enough to know that you can't build strong foundations on shaky ground, right? And that it's, it's the society that we're operating in can't seem to, to facilitate any meaningful change right now. So as a result, how well can it even regulate very effectively? So we're in a very unique time and place that we're seeing we're seeing these questions manifest in, in many ways. But, all right, Dries, let's, uh, let's turn the corner on uh, doom and gloom once again and, uh, and inject a little humor to wrap up this, uh, this episode. Tell me about something that you that has recently made you laugh. Yeah, so um, to be honest, I've been binge watching the past <laughs> two, three weeks. And more specifically, I, I've looked at two uh, series. Uh, one is The Dropouts on Disney Plus, which is the it's telling the story of Terranos and Elizabeth Holmes. And at the same time, you had on Apple the We Crashed series, uh, which tells the story about WeWork and how it went down. And I find it very intriguing to look at both series. Of course, it's it's dramatized. It's uh, but but actually the acting I think is is very nice and still it's quite interesting to see the dynamics over time. Um, so I, I highly recommend both of them to look at them. But there was something. It's rather small, but it it, it really triggered my interest. In both series, you see that the the main characters are drinking these extremely ugly or they look at least very distasteful green juices. So in the dropout, we have Elizabeth Holmes who is even forced by her partner uh, to drink green juice. And in the recrest, you see that the, 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 the woman of Adam Newman also is content constantly drinking green juice. So I was thinking like, is this a signal that if you see people drinking green juice, you have to be very <laughs> careful about what is going on with the company because uh, uh, it seems to be uh, not a good sign. And, and in general, it also makes me wonder why are these Silicon, Silicon Valley founders so obsessed with kind of healthy food <laughs> you know i have the feeling that that's such an important topic uh, and, and i was just thinking is there a, an explanation about 
and these people with these very specific mindsets uh, that want to disrupt the world and and conquer uh, really the economy and their their obsession with healthy food. <laughs> well, well, Dries, I guess I'll be the first to admit that I am a subscriber of Athletic Greens, and I, I have my Athletic Greens uh, every morning. Okay, uh, so you also drink this, this disgusting green-looking... Just in case Athletic Greens wants to sponsor this podcast... <laughs> Since they do Huberman and Sinclair and so many of the famous podcasts that I, I already enjoy, um, you know, it, honestly, it's not it's not that awful. Um, and I'll mix it with berries and make a smoothie out of it. And then you don't taste really the earthiness of it at all. But it's just for people that don't like popping, you know, a ton of vitamins all the time. You're getting all these micronutrients that are that are in there. But I, I would agree that it's a little bit of a zeitgeist kind of thing and, you know, it kind of ebbs and flows. But, you know, why, why are you seeing that portrayed in the kind of Silicon Valley space, I think, is, is probably more relevant, right? And, and there's some interesting, I think, patterns that have been unfolding, right? So, you know, the longevity movement and the health span movement is largely funded and, and rooted in that space. You're dealing with... Uh, a degree of wealth that history has never seen before. And there are technologies and medicines that are largely inaccessible to most of us that if you have enough wealth, you're able to to uh, reach. I mean, all you have to do is look at a picture of Jeff Bezos now versus 10 years ago. You know, you can see the testosterone replacement therapy and the human growth hormone working its full effect, right? Um, so there, there is that culture that exists there. The question is, is like, why, right? Are these people, I mean, I, I'm a big advocate of feed the body, feed the mind, right? And if you wanna be, if you wanna be successful in your intellectual and career pursuits, um, you're gonna have a hard time doing that if you don't take care of your, your body really effectively. And as someone that, you know, gained 25 kilos as an entrepreneur and lost it again, I certainly know that at least in my end of one experience to be, to be true. Um, now, of course, there is a whole lot of fad shit going on out there. Apparently now the big thing in California is drinking celery juice, which has absolutely no nutritional value whatsoever. No. And it takes the one good thing out of celery, which is the crunch. Everything else is pretty worthless. So, so I don't know, man. I don't know. But um, I, I hope there is no... I hope there is no direct uh, correlation between entrepreneurial catastrophe and and green juice. Otherwise, I will cancel my Athletic Green subscription. <laughs> yes, but but anyway, I think uh, both series were are highly recommended. Also for the audience, I think they are very on one end very entertaining, but still, I think they give a kind of sneak peek in the dynamics that explain how these epic failures could happen. Yeah. Uh, that's I think was uh, very interesting. Awesome. Well, I'm, I haven't had a binge watch in a while, but I, I've just been waiting for the right recommendation. So you might have just, uh, I've been wanting to see the, learn more about the story of, of Adam Newman and, and WeWork. And um, I think there's going to be another chapter that I don't know if they're going to make a show about it, but what the hell happens with SoftBank's investment yeah. in this, in this thing, which will be very, very interesting to see. Yep. All right, Therese, I'm going to share, you, share with you one thing that uh, 
that gave me not only a chuckle, but quite a few recently. And the topic that made me laugh this week is death. Okay. Specifically, liquid death. Okay. And you may, be, you may be thinking, like I did, you know, according to the World Health Organization, over 800,000 people die each year from diarrhea or as a result of unsafe drinking water. That's why I couldn't help but laugh when I learned of one of the fastest growing startups in the US, which is a great new beverage company called Liquid Death. Liquid Death is a mineral water company. They claim their mineral water comes from the mountains of Austria, although it is only sold in the United States. The company was founded in 2019 and just recently raised a 75 million Series C round, bringing their valuation to over $500 million in just a, a couple of years. Water, water. I, you know, they made water and then they expanded into bubbly water. <laughs> and now they have just started doing bubbly water with a little bit of flavor in there. <laughs> but you gotta say they they seem to be putting their money to, to good use. Their revenues last year were forty five million, and they're being distributed at like over thirty thousand locations across the U.S. I mean, they're in Seven Elevens and Whole Foods and Target and big supermarket chains. But the funniest thing, actually, about Liquid Death, besides its meteoric growth and its funny name, is kind of how it started and, and how it grew, right? So Liquid Death was founded by a guy named Mike Cesario, who was previously a creative director at, uh, at Netflix. And he's kind of a California counterculture type of guy. And um, so he decided in very lean startup fashion that he wanted to test the concept that he had in mind, which was kind of a rock and roll version of bottled water, canned water in this case. So what he did was he created this cartoon video that he posted on, uh, on YouTube. And it's kind of a gruesome video that he called, Hey Kids, Murder Your Thirst. And it depicts this muscular, muscular monster with a liquid death can for a head going around slaughtering other characters with a battle axe and chopping them into pieces with a bunch of kind of heavy metal music playing in the background. Apparently, he got enough validation for that from that video to really start his company. So he decided what he wanted to do was market to what's called the straight edge community. So this is kind of the heavy metal punk rockers that are, um, that don't do drugs and they're sober, you know? So he was like, I'm gonna provide a drink for these, these straight edges at these rock shows and whatnot um, that don't wanna drink alcohol. So he wanted to market this drink in bars and tattoo parlors and, and barber shops on the west and east coast of the US. But it got so much traction that they ended up getting deals from 7-Eleven and Whole Foods. A 1 million seed investment turned into a 23 million Series A, followed by a 15 million by the big global concert promoter Live Nation, which they made them their exclusive water provider at their, at their events. And it grew so fast that they even did a Super Bowl ad. And their Super Bowl ad was a bunch of little kids listening to heavy metal music. And the tagline, which is the tagline of the company, is, don't be scared, it's just water. 
So I asked the listeners out there, many of you have either live in the U.S. or have been there before, like, are any of you one of their millions of super fans? I think almost a million followers on, on Instagram. Maybe you joined their Murderhead Death Club by, by buying one of their newly minted severed head NFTs. Or maybe you bought one of their cutie paluties, bloody dismembered stuffed animal sea creatures that protest oceanic plastic waste. If you didn't know, Liquid, Liquid Death only sells cans. Or, may, or maybe you recently caught a glimpse of their Don't Fuck the Planet campaign video, which is hosted by adult film actress Cherry DeVille. <laughs> so one, you know, either way, like one thing seems really clear from this whole thing is we're kind of, we're now, I think, officially in an era of brand first businesses where a simple can of water can go from the very bottom of one of the most hyper competitive markets that are dominated by players like Coca Cola and Nestle and Pepsi to one of the hardest, hottest startups on the market simply by being creative and targeting a very specific but surprisingly large audience. And to, to, to really put the cherry on top, one of the things that cracked me up the most is the company's legal entity name is called Supplying Demand, Inc. <laughs> so kind of like we just discussed early on the science of sales, I'll just ask you, like, is the future of successful venturing going to be driven by marketeers instead of product developers? creative minds rather than engineering minds? Like, is this the future of, uh, you know, the next great ventures is how we kind of reach, reach people through creative branding rather than quality of product? Yeah, <laughs> but think about, you also have, let's think about Red Bull and stuff like that. For me, it's, it's quite similar, although there you still have, you could say it's also the energy part, but also still, I see with a lot of young people drinking a Red Bull is also part of your identity. Uh, not that much about uh, compensating an energy problem. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a bit similar here, not that by drinking this water, you become part of a community. So I would say it's not, it's not just a, a marketing in general. It's really this thing about community that I see mm -hmm. everywhere. It's also with the NFTs. And so, if, if you look at all these NFTs, they're all emphasizing this community part. By buying this NFT, you become part of this Bored Ape community or Moonbird community. So there seems to be this extremely strong, I, I don't know, extremely strong need for belonging to new communities. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and maybe it's also related to Corona. I don't know. But that, that's something I really, really see. Well, maybe it's also related to the social challenges that we talked about regarding Elon Musk, right? How we're, we're moving into this tribal world and you're in one camp or the other. And if you can find a, a camp that you identify with and you can find people that seem similar to yourself, that gives you a, a, a space to feel welcome and wanted in a world where not everybody fits into the, to the different boxes. Now, what I think is interesting is, you know, we, I think we've seen this community building in the beverage industry. I mean, in perpetuity. I mean, even as a kid, I remember, are you a Coke guy or a Pepsi guy, right? Like Mr. Pib or Dr. Pepper, 7-Up or Sprite, right? There was always like these kind of uh, 
binaries that that you got to choose from. Of course, Red Bull took it to the next level. Monster Energy, kind of those types of drinks, did it really well. But I think the other part that is that I, I really love about this business is the role of humor. And I think what we're starting to see is startup ventures rocket fueling their go-to-market through humor and laughter. And to me, the great model for this was the Dollar Shave Club. I don't know if you remember the, the commercials he did. The, the CEO and founder was actually a stand-up comedian and then decided to build this business. So when he did the first commercial for their go-to-market, it was so funny and so cheeky. That company sold for over a billion dollars, right? So um, this always brings me back to the neuroscience, right? And as we talked about a few weeks back about laughter, you know, and the importance and how humor, if done right, can be really, really effective. Of course, if done wrong, not necessarily so. But here's a situation where a brand of literally a can of water used, like you said, community, brand identity, and humor to go to enter one of the hardest industries on the planet and have one of the most meteoric rises that we've ever seen. And frankly, they're pretty damn funny. <laughs> no, but I think, I think we are increasingly expecting as consumers that brands entertain us. And I think that's that's where the humor comes in. So I think it's not necessarily that it needs to be humor, but you need to entertain people in one way or another. And I think that's something we will increasingly see that brands will start thinking, how can we entertain people? Uh, because that's, that's an important part of it, I think. It, it sure is, you know, and with our... Uh... With our limited attention spans, anything we can do to hold them a little bit longer can be valuable. So, well, Dries, once again, man, always enjoy these conversations. Um, I feel like I, I always learn something and, and I walk away with a smile. Um, but we've got another episode coming up soon. You and I are going to be recording together. Since I always do this, maybe you want to share what is going to be unique about our, our next episode. Yes, I think uh, we. I'm really looking forward to it because it will be our first live recording of an episode. So we will be in Berlin together where we will uh, record an episode with Jochen Siervogel, which is the co-founder of Empal. And we will have uh, an audience of approximately 50 EMBA students that actually come from Canada and that will visit uh, us in Berlin. So I'm really looking forward to that because I hope it can give an additional dimension to the podcast and the, uh, the atmosphere. Yeah, you're, you're dragging me into the pressure cooker, Dries. Now I got to do this in front of a bunch of people rather than a, the screen. But uh, I am really looking forward to that event, um, obviously having an engaged audience, but also being able to, to speak with Jochen and hear his founder story and the experience of you know, building a, a unicorn um, climate tech venture, I guess you could call it, sustainable energy venture. So, um, and of course, uh, one with strong roots at Feihau. So um, it should be a great one. I'm really looking forward to it. But um, as usual, Dries, thanks for joining today. Thanks for bringing such uh, 
thought-provoking topics into the conversation. And thank you all for joining us. And as I've said once, I will say again, um, if you enjoyed the episode, please feel free to leave us a five-star review on Apple, on Spotify, or your favorite podcast streaming service. If you didn't like it so much, you can just skip that step. Bis nächstes Mal. <laughs>